All right. What's up, everybody? And welcome back to the Sex and Self podcast, a place where you can learn a little bit about sex and hopefully a lot about yourself. We have a really unique episode today. We're going to talk to Courtney, the founder and executive director of Something Positive for Positive People, about STIs, HSB, mental health, and also race. And this is a really interesting intersection that we don't often get to talk about on this podcast. So Courtney, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Would you like to introduce yourself, tell people about what you do? Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate you reaching out and uh, wanting to do this interview because I enjoy talking about sex and self. I was about to say myself. That would have sounded <laughs> real bad. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I do uh, also host a podcast where I get to interview people who are navigating any sort of STI stigma, um, STI being sexually transmitted infections. And I've been doing this for five years now. I uh, started in 2017. I began interviewing people who were struggling with suicide ideation after their herpes diagnosis and just bringing in the experiences of people who are at an okay place with their diagnosis to serve as sort of a roadmap for how to navigate the stigma of managing symptoms, managing disclosure conversations. And I wish there were a better word for disclosure because of how like textbook it sounds. And um, I started getting into the habit of saying, just sharing your positive status with someone that you're interested in who would be potentially exposed to it. And even exposed is a bad word, right? Um, but yeah, I started this work then in 2017, and here we are now uh, as a nonprofit organization. Um, it has really just become this hub of lived experiences of people just who've gone on to self-educate themselves in regards to navigating sexual health communication. And throughout this process, I've learned that there is such an interconnectedness of sexual health and mental health. Um, and yeah, there, there's a lot more that I could say, but I think that's a really good uh, intro that will, um, yeah, probably take it into the next segment of what you want to go into. Yeah, absolutely. And I really, really appreciate the like holistic perspective that you have on sexuality and specifically like STI results and specifically the way you always mention language because I find that like sexuality and not sexuality STI results are typically like like such a negative there's just such negative terminology around STI results so I think it's really really important to like note that while there aren't better words yet we're like working towards having a better rhetoric around STI um diagnoses or whatever the right terminology is, but I also think that it's, it's really interesting to talk about, um, like the mental health impact because, you know, people get diagnosed with HSV or, you know, gonorrhea or herpes or whatever it might be. And they just kind of get prescribed medication and then they like get sent home and the doctors tell them nothing. Like yeah. <laughs> part of this is that our, I, identities are very interconnected with our sexuality. So the receipt of an STI diagnosis, especially one that is not curable, like you can have it now and then take something, wait a bit, and then you can say you don't have it anymore. Um, that 
really hits people in a different way. Like that diagnosis completely shatters a person's identity because of how interconnected it is with their sexuality. And a person is then left with having to put the pieces of themselves back together. I believe that from a perspective of a healthcare provider, they just really don't know how to navigate this. And there may be some internal bias or stigma against that person for the sex act that they would have performed that would have gotten them into that place of receiving uh, an STI diagnosis. So there's that judgment exclusively on one's sexuality. And I think that the reframe of looking at it from a whole person perspective, um, just kind of like how you mentioned, like I, I say sexual health is mental health because that's really something that is like a slogan that people can get behind right now and hear and think, as a healthcare provider delivering a diagnosis, I am not just treating the symptoms here. There is a bigger symptom, which is stigma that could be projected from within the healthcare provider onto the person. So being able to reframe that uh, from looking at a person as what they're in, therefore, with the sexual impacts, their symptoms, look at it from a stigma perspective. This person received this physical traumatic event that has a mental impact on them. So when you can look at a person from that perspective, you can begin to meet them with much more compassion. You can begin to ask, you know, all right, here's the medication. What else do you need? How can I refer you? Like, are there resources that I can have on hand available to me in order to share with you? What are some of your biggest concerns? What are some questions that you have for me? And typically what you'll find is that people just want to be reminded that they are who they were prior to their diagnosis. The only people who can do this are people who've known them before that. So I think that for a healthcare provider, the best thing you can do is validate that person's identity as to who they were 10 seconds before they made a decision to come into the uh, facility for testing because of any symptoms they may have had or before they even got that news. Uh, I see the delivery of a diagnosis as the first touch point of not just STD prevention, um, but also uh, the first contact point of potential stigma. How a person receives their diagnosis not only impacts how they choose to disclose to a partner or if they go back to their relatives and disclose to them, but if they choose to disclose. So a doctor telling them something like, oh, you're fine, uh, just wear condoms and you won't pass it on, or just take the medication, or if you don't have an outbreak, then you're not contagious. People are looking for the credible resource to give them a reason not to have to talk about their sexual health status, which means they aren't going to want to open that door by even talking about sex. And then you get into these gray areas of consent, communication of what sex looks like, and you're not able to have the pleasurable and safe experiences that you want to have with a potential partner because of the absence of that safety and communication or the, the, I'm sorry, the language and comfort uh, with communication. So healthcare providers play a really key role into this. And I don't even think they know how much power they have over the uh, aspects of, and again, STD and prevention are two words that I'm wanting to get away from. And I, I start saying STI minimization, but that's not something that people are like keen on yet maybe in a few years. 
I really like that because we're also trying to move away from this whole notion of like sexually transmitted diseases to sexually transmitted infections, which is still like a slow burn for most for most folks because of that stigmatization and like just the way like even the media discusses sexually transmitted infections and understands them because, you know, you read Cosmo and you read all these like, you know, click baby articles about sexuality and sexually transmitted infections. And it's, it does not have this very intricate holistic perspective of like how impactful all of these interactions are. Um, but because of your own personal experience and because I do feel like there's so much stigma around herpes and like it's, and I'm putting up air quotations like incurability because, you know, it's something that is reoccurring and it's different for a lot of people. Um, can you give people kind of like a crash course on the difference between HSV-1 and HSV-2? Yes. So HSV stands for herpes simplex virus. And this is a part of a family of viruses that are herpetic, if you will. The two main uh, viruses uh, in this family that people often affiliate with shame and stigma are HSV type 1, which is primarily an oral infection. You may know them as fever blisters or cold sores, but this can be passed on genitally. Notice I said primarily oral infections are labeled HSV 1. HSV-2 is primarily genital. While it is rare for it to appear orally, it is possible. So that's the main difference between the two. And there's much more stigmatization with uh, HSV type 2. And even if a person has HSV-1, I think there's significantly less stigma there because you don't have to call it what it is. You don't have to call it herpes. You don't have to call it oral herpes or a cold sore. Um, it's just a better name for it, and it's way more acceptable. Uh, you can pass oral HSV-1 onto a person's genitals so that they'll then have HSV-1. And another issue with the healthcare um, field is that they may just look at it and think, oh, it's genitals, so it's HSV-2. The terminology is very tricky in itself. When I was diagnosed um, nine years ago, I was given a pamphlet, and this pamphlet showed me these different statistics where the language was just thrown around from one in six, one in five, one in four, one in three, one in two. And I believe that one in two was just how many people were living with uh, oral herpes at that point in time. Um, but the language was like oral herpes, genital herpes, genital HSV2, genital HSV1, oral HSV2, oral HSV1. But the stats like were very just it didn't help me because all it said was, here's how many people have herpes. I don't know any of these people, right? And uh, the most useful information to me happened to be uh, something that I just, I, I started to create for myself, which was conversations. I started to go to the um, people, the sources directly and hear from people who are living with herpes about the fact that they only get an outbreak uh, there's a lady I spoke with who gets outbreaks on her elbows. Uh, there's another lady who gets on her ankle. And these are people who are diagnosed with HSV. It's not genital and it's not oral. So now they're in the category. They're seen as the kind of person that you would associate with having a sexually transmitted infection, even if the infection is on her ankle or elbow. Now you may 
you know, get into dialogue around, well, how'd you get it on your elbow? How'd you get it on your ankle? What kind of freaky shit are you doing to have herpes there, right? But that's that ignorant stuff. And we really need to be able to combat ignorant language with more um, direct and more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? More like concise language, if you will. So when doctors are, you know, giving a diagnosis, they don't need to say, oh, it's genital. All right. It's uh, genital herpes type two because type two is genital. No, it's primarily genital. You don't know unless you test it. And the most accurate way of testing is to have an outbreak present and then go and get it tested then. Um, the blood test without any symptoms, you know, there's, there's no way to determine 100% accuracy of a diagnosis through a blood test. The best way, the most accurate reading that you're going to get is to go in while you're having physical symptoms. And some people just don't get symptoms. I'm someone who's had herpes for nine years, and I think I've had three outbreaks. And the good that's come out of this is that I've learned that a lot of sugar is something that triggers me. And by a lot of sugar, I mean, listen, there's these little cans. I, I remember where I was at. I was in Chicago and I was at like a, a gathering and they had mixers for the alcohol. And there were these little cans of the best way that I can describe them are if Hawaiian Punch and Sprite had a baby. That is what mm. this was. And it, it had 98% of your daily recommended value <sighs> for students. And I had probably slammed about four of those things. So, yeah, a couple of days later, I had an outbreak. And I was like, what did I do this? Oh, that's what I did this weekend. Um, but, yeah, it, it's different for everyone. Some people can have outbreaks. Some people may never have outbreaks. Some people get them all the time. Um, but this is manageable with medication. The medication, valcyclovir, famcyclovir, acyclovir are all different types of medication. You know from the uh, cyclovir. Yeah, I think cyclovir is like the, the, the root word for it. Um, and for me, I just had to take two pills a day for three days after my first outbreak. Uh, and it went away. And I didn't expect that to happen. I thought my genitals were always going to look like a nuclear explosion went off on that part of my penis. But that wasn't the case. Like It went away. And I looked at it. I like touched it and played with it. and was like, whoa, it's like nothing happened. And that was really relieving to me to know that I wouldn't have to just walk around with that there thinking that if I touch my genitals and then touch another part of my body, I'm going to pass it on to myself or pass it on to someone else uh, just from touching my genitals and touching them because I like oral sex. I like sex sex. Like I like, I like being able to use my genitals. And I thought that that was just going to be something that would not happen for me again until I noticed that it went away. And I was like, Oh, and then through the conversations with other people and learning how to minimize the risks of passing it on to other people. And notice that I didn't say eliminate, I said minimize, because there's always a possibility. And I, as challenging as that is to say or accept, I always have to have that conversation with partners of, all right, yeah, we'll have our intimacy. I will do what I can to um protect you from me passing this on to you. I listen to my body. I trust my body. If anything feels off or if I'm under a high stress situation, then maybe let's not have penis involved sex. We can do other things. So even throughout this journey and those conversations, learning to get creative, I've learned to navigate the space of, um, of, of just talking about my own diagnosis in a way that is 
normal, like more normal, if you will, to me than what it was before. Cause I didn't talk about STI testing. I didn't talk about pleasure. It was just how sex was had was based on what was popular at the time. I remember when Janelle Aiko said, you gotta eat booty like groceries, right? That was what was hot in the streets at that point in time. But after having had this experience, it was like a lot of that didn't apply to me anymore because there's something that needs to happen in order for it to get to the point where we were talking about uh, sex acts. And that became communication. And the communication about my SCI status, my positive herpes status was what opened the door for that communication about ongoing sexual pleasure and how sex looked for that person, for those people, for myself, and then being able to come together on what that looks like to create a fun experience that we feel comfortable and safe in. Completely. And it's actually, I I appreciate you kind of bringing all of this forward because I actually have HSV-1, but I remember when the doctor told me, I was like 12 years old when I had my first outbreak and I actually get my outbreak up my nose, like in my nasal hole. I don't know what the right term is. Anyways, but I remember being 12 and the doctor not even saying HSV, they said herpes. And 12-year-old me freaked the fuck out. Like, she did not know what the hell was happening. 12-year-old me had not kissed a boy yet, like, or anyone yet. And I was actually really pissed off at my parents because I was pretty sure that I got it from them because they both have uh, HSV-1 outbreaks on their mouths. And they, like, kissed me quite aggressively in, like, the most loving way. But, like, as parents do, it's just, like, all over your shit, and I'm, like, fucking... That's that, that's that Italian life, ain't it? Oh, it's, it's, that's, <laughs> the, that's the two cheeks and all over the face, and I'm, like, fuck, mom, dad, you gave me herpes, what the hell? Um, but it's actually interesting, because as I've kind of grown into this space, this, like, this HSV-1 diagnosis was super prevalent in my high school experience, because... I have outbreaks due to stress and sugar. I mean, granted, I was not drinking 96% sugar intake drinks. I think I would, I don't know what my reaction would be, but that's just like not, that doesn't work for my body at all, regardless of the HSV. It's just like not, <laughs> it would not work well. But for me, I was like chronically stressed in high school, you know, being the like A type person that I was. And so I would constantly get outbreaks and I was nervous that people were going to know it was herpes and like, it actually kind of migrated from my upper lip to my nose, which is like so weird. Um, but like it, it is what it is. And it kind of went away during university. And I like never really had, I haven't had an outbreak for like five years. Yeah, super exciting. Nobody wants a huge like wart in their nose. It's like quite painful. Uh, <laughs> it was not like not cute, not the vibe. But um, as I kind of grew into this space myself, it like, was something that I kind of forgot about. And then as I was having these conversations, I was like, oh, if this does happen again, like I have to be cognizant of like, you know, you can't kiss a partner with a like a bleeding. I mean, granted you can like, but you gotta, you gotta be like cognizant of it. Like if you have a blistering one, but because my, my guy grows up in my nose, he's like less, you know, vulnerable to this, the places and spaces where it goes. And also my nose is not really going anywhere special. Not- are you not in the nose stuff? You know, I'm kidding. I, I am king, queen. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> Yo, but you see my face? You say, I mean, <laughs> listen, we're sex positive here. 
here. No shame. No shame. No shame. No shame in the game. No, but my nose is just for me and my HSB. So uh, I'm going to keep it that way for now. Who knows, though? Um, but what's really interesting kind of about your experience and kind of the uniqueness of it is also your blackness. And I think that that plays, well, I'm not, not that I think, I know that that plays a huge role in kind of how you present yourself within this community and also the stigma associated with, you know, being, having a positive result and being black and also being straight. And I don't need to woman explain this to you, but just to give people kind of the perspective of, you know, this space is predominantly white and uh, it's predominantly femme as well. So it's really interesting to think about, I mean, I would never know, but I can only imagine what kind of experiences you've encountered as a black man in this space and maybe like the positives, but also the negatives about what you've kind of lived and learned through being here for like five years? Yeah, um, I really appreciate this question. Thank you for like making space for it. Uh, positively, I mean, on one hand, I get to talk to a lot of women and just kind of learn the perspectives of women in navigating not just their SCI status and disclosure, but just navigating relationships. And like, it feels like I'm able to take what uh, conversation I have with one woman and apply it to the experience of another one and help her. Uh, I really wish that there was no stigma because then I can just like have this space created and remove myself from it because I'm like the barrier of people's anonymity. If I weren't here, then everyone would be able to connect with each other and realize just how similar these experiences are or how they complement one another and that, you know, in listening to the podcast, this is kind of what that offers when people are able to sit in on a conversation between myself and someone who is living with herpes. Like I'm not there as myself. I'm there as the lived experiences and perspectives of people who shared with me bouncing ideas off of that person. So it's almost like you're able to sit in the room and have this dialogue too, because it's it's not 100% about the herpes. I think that starting the podcast out, I made 90% of it about the herpes, 10% about the person. Over time, that's evolved to being 90% about the person, 10% of it is about herpes. And even then, like to say that this is exclusively about herpes would be doing it at the service. At its core, something positive for positive people is a suicide prevention resource. It just has the secondary impact of touching on herpes and stigma, uh, STI and sexual health communication, as well as that, that whole sexual health is mental health interconnectedness, right? As a black man in this space, predominantly occupied by white women, I have to present myself in a way that on one hand is, you know, I, at any moment, someone can screenshot a conversation and tailor it, doctor it into a way that it looks like I'm saying something that I'm not. And as a black man, any allegations from a white woman in this space about me don't need proof. Like I, 40 years ago, I would have been lynched for any sort of an allegation of, let's say, sexual misconduct, right? And playing the game of telephone over a period of days or weeks or months or years that can eventually come around to being viewed as sexual assault, right? And it's very just like 
it's it's a shitty, tricky gray area of all right, this is the field I'm in, and like if I were a bartender, right, and I worked with other bartenders, we worked together, and there's attraction, like, and people explored that, like it's normal, it's accepted, and no one's gonna bat an eye about it. But for me, I'm in a space where it's a mixed bag. Like this is kind of like the wild, wild west of uh, of spaces in sex education. So there's the fact that I'm talking about sex and I'm talking about my own sex life very openly and freely on my podcast and in conversation and people share with me their experiences uh, with their sex lives and how they want to move forward. And I often recognize for myself, like I go above and beyond to create that like barrier between where we're talking about sex and then where we're talking about sex with each other. And it's like at that point of a line being crossed, there has to be a very serious conversation about what expectations are moving forward because I'm someone who, even in starting a space, like being aware of my presence, aware of the political uh, uh, climate that we're in, and being aware of like the fact that I like these are sexually charged, sexually charged conversations that can trigger arousal, and that conversation triggering arousal can be misinterpreted for attraction. And then when attraction is perceived, then there's a need to act or there may be a compulsion to act in a particular type of way. I think that another like saving grace here is that so much of what's going on is digital. So it's like people are longing for connection. People are uh, having to supplement for what uh, like physical touch normally presents, like people tired of the Zoom shit. Like we got our boxes <laughs> next to each other. So digital dialogue, text communication, like it's a lot more charged than uh, let's say like pre, <laughs> I, I say BC for before COVID. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like there's a lot more of a charge to it now than there was before COVID, right? And yeah, so it's it's a matter of me like really hyper having to be uh, or it's a matter of me having to be hyper vigilant in consent uh, for sure and having like hard boundaries around how a conversation may escalate. I've never told anyone, hey, like you need to dial it back. Like I don't need to hear about you getting face fucked off the edge of the bed and not passing herpes on to your partner. I you'd be surprised. <laughs> oh, um, I I can very much it's uh it's a very slippery slope. I can relate to some degree just as a woman talking about sex quite often and quite openly. I find that like I'll go on dates and men will just think like I'm a high end escort. And I'm like, not the same, not the same. Uh, like just because I talk about sex does not mean I want to have sex with you. But, uh, yes. you know, it's a, it's a very interesting, it's a very interesting intersection, but I do want to like clarify that I would a hundred percent not host a conversation about like the whole, you know, the argument of like, men get falsely accused all the time. La, la, la. I want to like clarify that. I really think that 
the intersections on how we understand and how we include black men into the dialogue are like it's like the primary focus of this conversation and not like the question of you know men get wrongly accused all the time that's why we shouldn't believe women type of thing that's like not the rhetoric that we're gonna have but I think it's really important to like to and I, I I spoke to you about this earlier before we recorded, but you know I'm very quick to jump on the bandwagon of, of I believe women, and really when we're understanding feminist you know theories and feminist approaches to this type of work, we really have to be cognizant of okay how you know what is the relationship of this person, how are they interacting with one another, how are they you know understood by society, how are we portraying you know the people and i think that that's really important in your experiences yeah and a tricky part about that too is like there there's so many components that go into it between language between like the choice of words the placement of words when describing like acts and uh, that yeah all of this (laughs) is stuff that you know generally white women who are in the space predominantly dominated by white women don't have to think about but for myself having entered this space and having had five-year tenure in this space at this point uh i think that it's gotten to a point where i'm seeing that there is uh acknowledgement and recognition of how this conversation about believing survivors and that um that like not all men are perpetrators, like looking at how both of these uh, headbutting conversations go, the awareness alone is one thing, but then to question it is like, it's invalidating to one's experience, right? But in the invalidation of the experience of someone who, you know, we're talking about believing survivors, right? For so long, women have not been believed. And then, you know, now having a place where, you know, it's possible for someone to just take advantage of that and be like, oh, we're on a bandwagon of being believed. I see someone that I want to cause harm to. Here's how I'm going to weaponize that for myself, for whatever the intention is. And yeah, that's like my greatest fear at this point, uh, especially because like with something positive for positive people, I'm becoming generative of a lot more success now and um, I've had conversations with my board members and they've been like hey you know now that you are beginning to get um, traction and people are starting to invite you to speaking and things like for so long I've just had a podcast and a nonprofit, but now there are affiliations with organizations contracts are in place now and checks are being cut so I'm much more hyper aware of the fact that I have to uh, sort of create more of a strength and boundary and barrier for myself of communication with people. And it's unfortunate because I feel like that openness has really been what got me here to this point. The free flowing of conversation, like some people come to me in very dark places and all they need is to be hyped up, like to be called uh, gorgeous or bad bitch. Like I'll, I'll say that real quick, like, hey, pick your head up, you're a bad bitch. And they'll be like, <laughs> I'm tired. I need to hear that, you know what I'm saying? And for something like that to even come back on me later and be like, well, Courtney called me a bitch. Like, I don't have a defense for that. But uh, 
fortunately, I guess, uh, I am a dude who has a podcast. And there's five years of history of my own evolution and growth throughout my tenure in this space. So, like, I have that to back me up. Um, I have so many conversations with women, and it's mostly white women who hopefully have gotten something out of our dialogue exchanges because there's like a, a hunger or a desire to hear from the experiences of men for most women that I speak with who do date men. And th this voice is not representative. So I'm aware of the value of my presence. I'm aware of the risks of being present in this space. And I mean, all I can do is just continue to be me and just hope that the good karma that I've collected is something that just continues to roll with me and that my energy and my history really speak volumes about myself. And so that's just speaking from my experience as a black man in the space predominantly occupied by white women with like sex being the charged, uh, with sex being the focus of a lot of the conversation. No, absolutely. And there's so many, like, there's so many dimensions to that. Like we really just did it all because like I could go on and on about this and we, I'm sure you could as well, but it's just like, this type of vilification of black men just does disservice not only to black men, but also to fucking women. Like this is just hurting other women. Like the more we invalidate other women's experiences, whether we're women or men or whoever we are, we're just causing more harm. And it's, it's, it's very, very frustrating because, you know, like in my line of work, I have disclosures happen like on a weekly basis. And it's just like, I see these vulnerable 18, 19 year old girls come to me and talk to me about their you know, their stories and their lived experiences. And then I hear bullshit of like people vilifying individuals in spaces because they're uncomfortable with their presence or they're uncomfortable with their success or they're uncomfortable with the conversations that they're hosting, maybe because said person wants to host them themselves or whatever. But like, I could never host a conversation that you host. We have very different lived experiences. Like it just doesn't make any sense. Um, but then it's also like talking about the intersections between like having a conversation about sex and setting those boundaries of like, what is my boundary as a sexual health educator who openly talks about my sex life? And like, like you don't always have that clear communication of like, I'm going to talk to you about your lived experience, but we have to draw a line somewhere. Like that's never how these situations are presented. Like I would never talk to like a survivor of sexual assault and be like, you know, I have my own lived experiences and I'll share them with you, but I have to set this boundary, like as someone's telling me about their fucking rape. Like, I'm just not like this, not, not the vibe. It doesn't work. It, it doesn't, it doesn't help. And it's so interesting that you kind of closed off on openness because that's, I think, something that sexual health educators thrive off of and build their businesses off of. And now it's this interesting lens of like, being open but setting boundaries I don't know like how do you feel about that like does it kind of hurts my heart a little bit <laughs> um I have I'm in yoga I practice yoga and meditation and I have grown to learn that when you prioritize the needs of the spirit the body and everything around it tends to take care of itself and so in my 
taking care of the spirit, like I identify that as my values, my integrity. And one of the things that I value is transparency. So me offering this transparency of my life onto my podcast, into my day-to-day interactions, I think that welcomes in a lot of transparency from others as well. Like I want to support people in being able to be transparent in their own existence with the people around them who can validate their lived experiences. This is really good timing for this podcast episode. Like I just thought about it, but uh, over the course of February, I released four podcast episodes. This series has been called The Belonging Series, and I speak to the intersections of queerness, manliness, and blackness. So I'm a heterosexual black man who occupies and, uh, you know, arguably would be considered queer, depending on how you look at it. But my straightness directly conflicts with my queerness. My queerness would directly conflict with my blackness. My blackness directly conflicting with my manliness and my heterosexuality, right? So as I explored these three intersections of identities, I recognized that the labels that are there, the queer, straight, black, these are labels that were generated by the expectations of people who are outside of me. At the core of that triangle uh, intersection of identities, there's a sphere, and that sphere is just like who I am. I've let the labeling, the sort of like become debris and gunk on the outside of who I am. And this process of healing is a remembering of who you were prior to the labeling and the expectation setting of other people on your identity. So I've got to like hammer and chisel away at what it means to be straight, what it means to be queer, what it means to be black. And ultimately, like I found through my conversations uh, throughout February with other black men and then reflecting for myself, that I am more than what these labels and identifiers are. And it's important to remind yourself of that. It's an unlearning process, unlearning the expectations that come with those labels. Now, labels are very useful in finding community and being able to shortcut communication, but that only works for other people who know what it means. These two Black men that I interviewed throughout those episodes, they didn't know what queer was. They knew what it meant to be Black and that there are so many ways of being represented to be Black. And only thing that we all had in common was just like understanding, all right, well, here's what it means to be straight. Here's what it means to be a man. And we speak to that. So the timing of your question about the intersectionality and exploring those like varying identities I think that it really just comes down to reconnecting with your core throughout your own healing process, identifying what you value, what your values are, um, what you want to prioritize. And part of that is just prioritizing your spirit and your spirit being what consists of those intangible aspects of yourself. Like my spirit isn't black. This is how I express my spirit. My spirit isn't straight. I just so happen to have had experiences that make me like women right and then as far as the queerness goes like i explore with women in ways that would be arguably arguably queer and in this space it's queer this is a queer space we are actively deconstructing social norms we're not uh we we are challenging the status quo of heteronormativity monogamous culture and that is queer so for me like i understand the action behind these identities And that's what I'm rolling with. But from my core operating 
from these intangible aspects of myself, transparency, uh, evolution, peace, uh, liberation, consistency. These are things that make up my spirit. And in prioritizing those things, I feel like the business is beginning to come in. I feel like the connections and relationships that I'm building are just phenomenally out of this world, cosmic connections to say the least. And the opportunities, the passion, all of this is really coming together just as a result of being the kind of person who prioritizes those intangible aspects of yourself and flexing that muscle so that it grows. And then you'll notice that the, everything else just takes care of itself. So like, that's my little uh, spill to sexuality educators, if you will. And I, I hate that. Um, I kind of get lumped into other labels and categories like sex educator. Like, yeah, I guess that might be it. But essentially, like, I'm a journalist. I interview people and I ask the questions and I offer solutions. So the education piece, like, I love working with sex educators and partly because they have the credentials. They can talk about everything beyond, like, my questioning. I just ask questions that present the solutions in the way that I see them. So, yeah, I very much love and appreciate, you know, people like you, people who have done the work to obtain educator status. Like I will uplift, support all of y'all and I hope to get the same, you know, in return. But uh, I'm just a journalist. Like I'm I, the fact that I'm being interviewed by so many people about what I've discovered in my investigations. Uh, it, it feels very validating. Like it's super validating in my experience to know that like I'm I'm experiencing uh, being seen at that level of depth again with those intangible aspects of myself. So it's seen, it's acknowledged, and it's appreciated enough to be brought into conversation and uplifted on platforms. Absolutely, and like I really appreciate those intersections and that dialogue that you just kind of debriefed us on because I feel like I I feel like most of us find labels helpful but not like all the ultimate truth and I find a lot of folks kind of feel validated by labels but then also have to learn all of or unlearn sorry all of the limitations that labels provide us so like I really think that that's super such an inquisitive lens to kind of have from a, a journalistic or an educator's kind of standpoint because I just think that if anyone is kind of going to grapple anything from this conversation it's about how many different variables affect something that has been presented so simply. Blackness is presented so simply in society. HSV is presented so simply so like surface value um, and just having these like intuitive conversations internally but then also externally is like so impactful for different communities and different individuals kind of going through that reflective process. Um, so I'm really happy you were able to come on and chat with me. Do you want to show, do you want to tell people where to find you, where to find those specific conversations? Cause I really think that, well, I know I'm going to listen tonight, but I really think everyone else should as well. Yeah. So um, as mentioned earlier, I host a podcast. It's called Something Positive for Positive People, and it can be found wherever you listen to podcasts. The episodes on the intersectionality of identities uh, is called the Belonging Series. It's episode 216 to 17. 
to 18 and oh no i'm sorry to 15 to 16 to 17 to 18 and these are just areas of exploration on what it means to be queer what it means to be straight or manly and what it means to be black and uh yeah i just kind of speak to that processing process because i wondered can you be straight and queer and depending on who you ask will determine the question it is that you get but i mean you can be straight and occupy queer spaces but you can't always be queer in straight spaces so yeah there's there's some questioning there it's just like a reflective series of podcast episodes um yeah Absolutely. And we'll make sure to link all of those episodes in the podcast bio on all of your podcast platforms. But I just want to thank you again, Courtney, for taking the time to chat with me today. Thank you. I appreciate you having me.